Well, it's good to be here. It's great to see everyone this morning. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here. So glad uh, to be with you. So glad to be diving back into this wonderful letter of Philippians. Uh, So before we do so, let me just pray for us one more time. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, and thank you uh, for the chance to, to gather, to sing, to, to pray, to hear from you in your word, and pray that you would help me uh, now, uh, pray that you would help all of us to see your goodness, to see your kindness, to see your love, to see what it looks like to follow you, and Lord, uh, we thank you for this letter, and pray that we would be encouraged today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When I was growing up, there were a few things that I loved more than getting mail. And I also loved to read, and so my parents uh, were very generous, and uh, they got me a bunch of different magazine subscriptions so I could look forward to getting something in the mail and, and reading it. And these subscriptions generally had a theme. See if you can find it. The Sporting News, Sports Illustrated, Sport Magazine, Sports Collector's Digest, Baseball Cards magazine, and probably a few others uh, that I am forgetting. But there was one other magazine that, that I really do uh, remember enjoying, and it's a magazine actually that's still going strong, and that magazine is Highlights magazine. Now there's a lot of different things, and everyone knows Highlights magazine, there's a lot of different things in there, little puzzles and, and mazes, hidden pictures, all, all kinds of stuff. But I will admit there was one a section in Highlights magazine that I would always kind of immediately turn to, and that was a section called Goofus and Gallant. Does anyone else remember Goofus and Gallant? A few of you. You all remember it. Come on. Well, I'll explain it to you. The premise of Goofus and Gallant is very straightforward. There will be two drawings, one depicting what Goofus would do, and then there will be another drawing depicting what Gallant would do. And the idea, of course, was that the reader should want to be like Gallant. Now, I kind of feel like if you name your kid Goofus, you're getting what you deserve, but, but that's maybe a different story. I don't think I really learned that much from Goofus and Gallant, honestly. Most of it was pretty uh, straightforward and obvious advice. I was actually looking at some of them uh, this week, and one of them, <laughs> Goofus is throwing rocks at birds. Uh, while Gallant scatters seed for the birds. So that felt kind of obvious to me, like don't throw rocks at birds, thank you, highlights. Um, but I always, I always really did like turning uh, to these drawings to see what, what Goofus and Gallant were up to in that issue. And yes, there have actually been studies done about whether or not Goofus and Gallant uh, is effective in helping children learn to behave. And I really thought hard about paying the $12 uh, for access to a research article about this but I didn't know how I would submit that receipt to Sandy, so I thought better of it. But the research is out there if you are interested, so I don't know how effective Goofus and Gallant are, but but I do think these drawings uh, remind us of one of the main ways that that we learn to live and believe, and that is through the power of example, both positive and negative. The Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, the letter to the church in Philippi, a letter that we are returning to today after a brief break, He understood the importance of example, and it's actually a concept that he's already addressed in this letter. Back in chapter 2, Paul talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus and how they were examples to the church in Philippi. And in our passage today, Paul is going to expand on this idea of example, and he's going to do so by employing both positive and negative examples. And there's really a lot uh, for us to consider uh, in this passage as we consider our own life as a church, as we consider the hope that we have, and as we consider how we live according to that hope together. 
So we're going to look at this passage in three small sections, the first one being verses 17 to 19. Let's look at that again. I'll read it. His brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul begins with what what seems like kind of a bold statement, a statement that, that might seem a little bit cocky, honestly. He states that the Philippians should imitate him. Now, Paul does not mean this in an arrogant way. We know uh, from his other letters that, that Paul was very aware of his need for the grace of God. In fact, right before this passage, Paul was very clear with the church in Philippi that he had not uh, yet arrived. At the same time, Paul knew that part of his calling was not just to speak the truth to the Philippians and other churches, but to live out the implications of that truth as an example for them. In fact, Paul's uh, invitation to imitate him was steeped in in all kinds of ancient practices in the Jewish faith. Many commentators have pointed out that this was really a standard way of learning. They They would receive teaching from the teacher, but they would also have a deep relationship with that teacher. They would see how their teacher would put the teachings into practice. And we know that this is true, right? We need more than just information, more than teaching. We need to see people doing what they are talking about. And, you know, we know that it's good news that that God gives the church uh, the gifts of of preachers and teachers who are set apart specifically for that kind of ministry, but we also know that teaching and instructing one another is the privilege of everyone in the church, as Paul notes elsewhere. Listen to what he says in one other section, one of his other letters. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so when we put all these things together, the the fact that teaching one another is the privilege of everyone in the church and the fact that teaching involves more than words of instruction, when we put this together, we can see that the path for our growth involves deep and intentional in-person community so we can see and experience what it looks like to follow Jesus in this way. When I moved out of my parents' house, about a year after I graduated from college, I moved into an apartment with uh, two of my best friends. And that was exciting, and it was also exciting because my mom and dad, as, as a gift, as I left the house, very generously bought me a new television that we could put in our apartment. And this television was a beauty. 32 inches, really nice color, and you knew it was a good TV because of how heavy it was. And so it took two of us very carefully to like walk it up the stairs to our apartment. I still remember that. And, you know, with this TV, our apartment very quickly became like the hangout place for, for all of our friends. Like every big sporting event, every movie we rented from Blockbuster, our apartment was the first option. And what I did was I kept this TV for a long time. In fact, I kept it so long that I still had it when Catherine and I were married and then several years after that. I began to notice that I was still inviting friends over for the game, but they were less and less excited to come over because they all had these new high-definition televisions. And I thought, that, that's so silly. Like, how big could the difference be? You really don't want to come over and, and watch the game? And eventually, of course, I, I, I broke down and bought a new TV. And after watching a couple of games on it, I was like, yeah, now I see why this was a big deal. You know, I'm paraphrasing another author, a guy named Jared Wilson, when I say that when the good news of the Bible is not simply taught, but truly lived out 
and deep community that the good news goes from standard to high def. It becomes much clearer. And so Paul says, keep your eyes on me because you know me. And keep your eyes on others who live in this humble, sacrificial way of following Jesus. And this is especially important given that there are plenty of other people around that the the Philippians could focus on. And Paul talks about them. He talks about those that he calls the enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their God is their belly. Their minds are set on earthly things. Their glory, they glory in their shame. Now there's a few things to notice about these people who Paul has set up as, as a contrast, right? The first thing we need to think about is, is what it is that, that actually characterizes these people because Paul isn't real specific here about, about their behavior and there's just a ton of conjecture about what Paul might be referring to. I'm not going to go deep into that debate, but I do think it's helpful to remember when we read the Bible that the context is so important. And so what's the context of this letter to the Philippian church is that Paul has been emphasizing again and again the humility of Jesus, and he's emphasized that Christians are to follow Jesus in this humility. And this humility is is shown, is demonstrated in turning away from the worldly way of selfishness, a selfishness that leads to us being more concerned to satisfy ourselves, right? Making our own bellies our gods and getting the best for ourselves rather than emptying ourselves for others. And so Paul is very clear to say those that live in this way are living in a way that that is completely opposed to the self-giving, sacrificial way of the cross. And understanding this contrast helps the Philippians as they consider what kind of people they should look for as examples to follow. And it's interesting because even in giving these instructions, Paul himself is showing why he is such an appropriate example for them to follow. Because look at how he he talks about these opponents. He's very upfront and very truthful, and and he does not mince words, right? He calls them directly enemies of the cross of Christ. And he's very clear what what their end is. Their end is destruction. Humility does not mean that Paul backs down from the truth or shies away for it. He's afraid to say difficult things. But at the same time, look at Paul's attitude towards these people. Paul speaks these words of truth, not with flippancy, not with arrogance, but with tears, And when he sees people going the opposite way of Jesus, the opposite way of life, he weeps. And this is what the church at its best looks like, right? A people who hold firmly to God's truth, not backing down from it, but not with arrogance, with humility and with compassion and care for those around us that do not yet know Jesus, even those who who may directly oppose us. So when we look for people to learn from, whether inside or outside the church, it's so important to to seek out those people who hold God's truth and God's way, giving themselves away in service for others. And here at Meadowcroft, I think those examples abound. There are so many people that serve in this way. And so as a church, we want to, to joyfully receive the teaching of God's word, look for those who live according to the pattern set by Jesus, imitate those people, and then live according to this pattern as a church, as a way, in a way that will set us apart from the rest of the world for the good of the world. Because the world desperately needs to hear and see that, that there is something different, that there's another way to live that leads not to destruction, but to life. And if this is you, I, I want to urge you to come to the better kingdom of Jesus Christ, that he stands ready to receive you. But of course, living in this way 
only makes sense if there is more to life than the world that we see. Otherwise, just like the people that Paul talks about, our, our minds would, would merely be set on earthly things, and that would be appropriate because that would be all that there is. And so Paul addresses this in verses 20 and 21. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul makes clear why it is that the Philippians should look for certain kinds of examples and avoid others. It's because they, as, as followers of Jesus, they belong to a completely different kingdom than those around them, a different kingdom with a different pattern of life, different goals, and most importantly, a different destination. Paul reminds them that their citizenship is in heaven. Now, we've noted this elsewhere in this letter when, when Paul refers to citizenship with the Philippians, that this is significant. This is kind of like weighted language, right? Because many citizens of Philippi were counted as citizens of the Roman Empire. And if you read your history, or even if you just read the rest of the New Testament, you know that it was a very big deal to be a Roman citizen. And that there were privileges that went along with this citizenship. The Philippians, who, who were Roman citizens, were very proud. They were very happy to be Roman citizens. And so what Paul does is he takes that understanding and he subverts it a little bit. And Paul himself was a Roman citizen, but he subverts this pride that they have by saying, hold on, you really belong to someone and something much greater than Rome. At the time Paul wrote this letter, it, it seemed that the dominance of Rome would last forever. But Paul knew that this was not the case. And that is why Paul tells them that their citizenship is in heaven. Not only are they citizens of a different kingdom, they are also citizens of a better kingdom. Yes, that there were benefits to being a Roman citizen. There were certain protections. And if you were a male, you could vote, you could own property and more. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, in a way, you, you had the benefit of kind of having your very own savior because that is how the Roman Caesars were often referred to. But all of this was just a pale reflection of the citizenship that God has made his people for. And Paul shows them this. Because citizenship in heaven for men and women, which again is a big deal, especially in that context, meant a real and true savior. One far greater than any Roman king. A savior named Jesus, who Paul says will return one day to transform their lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That's something that, that no Roman king could do. And that is real and good and true citizenship. There's nowhere that you can belong that offers this kind of life. And ultimately, this is the kingdom and the Savior that the Philippians and all those who follow Jesus belong to. Now, there are a few significant ways that, that Paul talks about this citizenship and what their true king, Jesus, will do for them. First of all, we see that, that Paul says they await a Savior to come from heaven. Now, when we think about that word wait, it can kind of conjure up images of, of, of passivity, right? If you're at a job, if you're at a job that you don't like, you're kind of just like waiting passively until 5 p.m. If you're at the bus stop, maybe you're just passively waiting for the bus to show up so you can go about your day. But the kind of waiting that, that Paul is referring to, as, as several scholars have pointed out, it refers to eager anticipation. This is something not just worth kind of waiting for, but worth setting your life around and building your hope upon. And a big part of this hope, Paul says, and I think this can be somewhat surprising for us, involves our bodies. 
As Christians, we, we don't always think a lot about what it means that God made us as a body. If we think a little bit more about it, though, we'll see that God making us as bodies invites us into the rhythm of the gospel. Just think about our bodies for a minute. What do we know about how they are created? The Bible tells us that we are created fearfully and wonderfully, that we are knit together in the womb. And we also know that that the human body is, is really remarkable. When we consider its design, when we consider what people are able to do with their bodies, running and, and jumping, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. When we think about how, how the heart works and, and how the brain works and on and on, we could keep going. We get a sense for the great glory of having a body. Which makes sense because God created us that way. And when we think about our bodies, we also see that we are limited creatures because even in the prime of our lives, we need sleep, we need food, we need water, we need the touch of others. And there's nothing wrong with, with all of those things. Those things were all true before sin entered the world. The humility that comes from being a body is good and beautiful. It's how God created us. But what happens to our bodies in, in this fallen world is often not good and not beautiful. When we get sick, when we get injured, when we sin by, by using our bodies in ways that don't honor God, when others sin against us by injuring or abusing our bodies, when we compare our bodies to others and, and feel inadequate. When our bodies stop functioning well as we head towards death. And as our bodies go from, from humble to a state that can sometimes feel humiliating, we begin to return to dust. And in that decay, Paul is telling us, because of Jesus, it won't always be this way. Bill Bryson wrote a book called simply The Body, and he draws attention to this decay. He says, we shed skin cells copiously, almost carelessly, some 25,000 flakes a minute, over a million pieces every hour. Run a finger along a dusty shelf, and you are in large part clearing a path through fragments of your former self. Silently and remorselessly, we turn to dust. I share that quote knowing I've probably ruined dusting for you forever now, but also just to remind us of, of the great glory and great humility that it is to be made as a body. It's good for us to, to, to feel our limits as we are made as bodies. It's good for us to see our decaying bodies and, and feel the need for a Savior. And it's good to know that he will renew us and that we will never decay again. Because as Paul notes here, when Jesus returns, our, our bodies, whether we are still alive or whether we've been in the ground for thousands of years, will be made like his glorious body. You might remember if you've read the Gospels, when Jesus rose from the dead and his body, it, it was still him, but it was him in a different way, in, 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 a, in a more glorious way. See, there, there's much mystery, I think, to, to what our bodies will be like when they are made new, but we do know that they will be wonderful because of who the creator is, who the renewer is. So we see the goodness of being made as a body. We understand the difficulty and hardship of its decay. And we know that in Christ, we will be made new. I mentioned uh, before about how our family enjoys watching movies together on Friday nights, and of course, how difficult it is to, to find a movie that everyone likes. About a month ago, we had not watched it before, but we finally uh, watched the movie uh, Back to the Future, right? And spoiler alert, it's 40 years old now, so too bad. It's been fun uh, to see the kids, really, they really enjoyed uh, the movie, and this straight-up enjoyment and joy over the movie lasted a few days, 
And then they like start to ask questions about like all the holes in the plot, which I think that's a journey that anyone who's seen that movie has been like, wow, that was great. And you're like, wait, why did, what, how did that happen? I think one of the more preposterous scenes uh, from that movie, and there are many, uh, comes uh, when Doc Brown somehow harnesses the power of a lightning bolt uh, to power the DeLorean to get Marty, the main character, back from 1955 to 1985. The, the only way to save Marty, the main character, is to harness great power to do something good. And it's all a little bit ridiculous, of course, but it works because we understand on some level that an endeavor like traveling through time would take a great amount of power. And I think we would also understand, if we think about it, that renewing and remaking and glorifying our humble, decaying bodies takes the kind of power that no one's able to comprehend. And this is why it's so good for us to remember and and read about and, and sing about the great acts of God's power in history and about how those acts of power benefit his people in a special way. Because we can then bring those acts of power to bear on our own circumstances and know that he has the power to do what he says he will do and that he has the character to follow through on those promises. This is one of the many reasons the Exodus story was such a powerful one for churches made up of slaves in America. Because they could see God's great power, yes, and also see in it that he was faithful to deliver his people from slavery, even in a miraculous way. This is one of the many reasons that the narratives of Jesus walking on the water have always been precious to so many persecuted Christians. Because it reminds them that even in the storm and and chaos of persecution, that Jesus is more powerful than the storm. And he is powerful enough to still the storm. And he's certainly powerful and faithful to protect and care for them. And so even as we consider our own decaying bodies, and, and, and it is hard, we can look back to the power and care that God showed when he made Adam out of dust, pronouncing Adam and Eve very good. And we can know that he has the power and the character to resurrect and renew our bodies someday because all things belong to and are subject to Jesus, the true and good king. And Paul, and so Paul has shown the, the, the Philippians what good news it is that they're not merely citizens of a passing empire in Rome, but that they are citizens of heaven. And in our last part of this passage, Paul shows us one more truth that marks this citizenship and also that marks Paul as an example for the Philippians to follow. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul makes it clear that he is not just an example to them, not just their teacher, but that he also makes it very clear how he feels about them. Now, both in the beginning of the passage and here, he calls them the the Greek word that is translated here as brothers. And that is a very literal word-for-word translation, which is what uh, the Bible we use, the ESV, attempts to do. But it's certainly appropriate to know that, that Paul felt this way about the men and the women in the church. In fact, we see many other places where Paul Uh, greets specific women in the church, commends their ministry. The point here is not one group of people, but of Paul's deep care and love for the entire church. And this is coming towards the the end of the letter to the Philippians, but it's not just a cursory like, hey, you know, I love you guys at the end of a letter. He basically says five times, repeating how much he cares for them. He loves them. He longs for them. He calls them his joy and his crown. And, And that term crown shows what an honor it was to Paul to know them and to be in their lives and to be ministering to them. And then again, he calls them his beloved. It's so obvious when we read this verse that he cares so much about them and he cares so much that they stand firm in the Lord 
and that they recognize their true citizenship. Now remember earlier in the passage, Paul told the Philippians to look for examples and he held himself out as an example for them. And again, this verse, chapter 4, verse 1, shows why he is such a good example because he loves them so very much. This was a love worth imitating in the church and they could follow his lead. They could trust Paul because they knew how much he cared for them. Paul told the Philippians to keep their eyes on those who they could imitate in following Jesus. And we've seen the way that Paul has lived this out by rejecting selfishness, by giving himself away for others, by holding firmly and humbly to the truth. And now we see that, that all these things are done in deep love for this church that he cares so much about. In our adult uh, Sunday school class that Dave recently taught, we were talking about how all of Scripture is ultimately about Jesus. And it's really interesting and beautiful when you begin to have that mind and when you go back to the Old Testament and you start to see all the, all the people and stories that, that point us to the goodness of Jesus. People like Abraham, Moses, Ruth, David, so many more. Now the New Testament does not have as many stories or as many characters as the Old Testament. But one of the ways the New Testament is beautiful in this way is that the story of Jesus continues. And in this case, it continues through Paul. We've talked so much today about the power of example, and we've seen how, how Paul, certainly an imperfect but, but excellent example to the church at Philippi. And we've seen also that Paul wasn't just some, some far-off person who, who the Philippians knew of. He was a, a person that they, that they very much knew personally. He had been with them, and he cared deeply for them. And they loved him very much, and he loved them very much. And in all of these things, we start to see that the ministry of Jesus is very much continuing through the ministry of Paul. Because when we look back at, at Paul's life and teaching, we can't help but be drawn back to Jesus. Do we see Paul in this passage holding himself out as a teacher and an example who would love and lead the Philippian church? And, and we're so reminded of Jesus and his love and care for his imperfect band of disciples. We see Paul in this passage unflinchingly holding to the truth and weeping over those who reject it. And how can we not be reminded of Jesus, who is the truth, looking out over the city of Jerusalem and humbly weeping over those that refused to follow him? And when we hear Paul talk about our lowly bodies, we remember that Jesus himself was, was born as a tiny infant in the flesh and dealt with a body that, that got hungry and tired and sore. And when we think about Paul, we realize the Philippians were able to have Paul as their example because they had received the gift of his care and the gift of his love and friendship. And we're going to see in the remainder of chapter 4 just how important this friendship was to Paul. The friendship was primary, and the example flowed out of that relationship. And this rhythm is very similar to knowing Jesus. The theologian Martin Luther said, the chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, you accept and recognize him as a gift as a present that God has given you and that is your own. John 3.16, of course, says that God so loved the world, he gave. He gave us his son. He gave us Jesus. And Jesus gives himself for us, giving his, his very body, not just to, to the challenges and infirmities of living in this world, but all the way to a Roman cross where he was pierced and bled and died for Paul, for the church at Philippi, for us, for the ways that we have sinned against God and one another. 
We were reminded earlier that even when we were dead in our sin, that Jesus gave himself for us. And Jesus' body, after being pierced for us, was buried. And then after three days, he, he rose, not, not just in a, in a spiritual way, but in a real tangible, physical way. His body actually rose from the grave. He walked, he talked, he ate. And it can be easy to, to forget that. Jesus, even today, after the Bible tells us that he ascended to heaven, he still has a human body, a body that, that has been restored and, and glorified and made new. And this is what all those whose citizenship is in heaven will experience someday when Jesus returns to bring justice to his enemies and deliverance for his people. Yes, Paul's ministry was an echo and a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. And today the ministry of Jesus continues as the Holy Spirit builds his church. And now the Bible tells us about our bodies, that our bodies are united to Jesus and that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we have the privilege now of living in a way that points forward to the day that Jesus returns, using our bodies, giving ourselves to serve and honor Jesus and serve and honor one another. And as we see that we belong to Jesus, we now have the privilege, just as the Philippians did, of being the ones to see where our true citizenship lies, to receive the gift of the love of Jesus and to set our lives according to the example of Jesus and the patterns of his kingdom, and according to the example, yes, of those around us, humbly following Jesus, longing, loving, and caring for one another, holding firmly to the truth, caring deeply for one another, and caring deeply for those who do not yet know him, and eagerly waiting for and expecting his return, and living with great hope, because we know that he will transform us to be like him. It is such a great hope, and it's the only true hope and it's one that we share together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are so thankful as we consider this passage. We're so thankful for your power. We're thankful that even when things look hopeless, even as we watch our bodies decay, even as we consider our own sin, Lord, that you are powerful to renew and restore, to forgive and that your character is such that you love to do so. And so, Lord, we, we today live with great hope. Lord, give us renewed hope in the gospel. Give us renewed hope in you. Give us a hope that longingly and expectantly looks forward to that great day when Jesus returns, knowing that even our decaying bodies will be made new. And Lord, in the meantime, help us to see that many do not know you, Lord, and help us to, to not be indifferent and not to be arrogant, but to hold ourselves out to them. Lord, in all these things, Lord, help us to see your goodness and your kindness. We thank you so much for Jesus, that he came to this earth, that he gave himself for us, and that he is coming back one day. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.